All right, take your Bible, turn to the, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter number 10. Ecclesiastes, chapter number 10. Solomon says this, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. The authorized version here has the word hedge. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a hedge. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. Let's make a short prayer together and then I'll give you this talk. Father, this is a a time change Sunday. These people don't seem to be too tired right now, Lord, but I I know that when the preaching starts, it's easy to get tired. And um, I pray you'd help us all to be sustained by, with help from on high. I pray most of all, Lord, that our hearts would not be drowsy towards you, that you would awaken us, Lord, with spiritual hunger and appetite. And I pray, Lord, selfishly, I pray you would do that in my heart most of all. I pray these things in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Now, my dad has always said that the book of Ecclesiastes was written after the time of Solomon's apostasy. Solomon was a, was a great man. A man of faith, but he apostatized for a time, turned away from the Lord, but it seems like he comes back to Jehovah in the end of his life. And I think my dad is right, because this book of Ecclesiastes is a collection of sayings written by a man who had lived some. Now, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Listen to what it says here in chapter 1, verse number 12. Solomon's talking about what he's doing. And this is a, he's writing from, in retrospect, he's lived and he's looking back. Now, uh, this morning we were talking, I was talking to somebody just for the service about the truck that fell through Mullet Lake. Their guy was ice fishing out there and he drove through the lake and he fell through. Did you guys see that on Facebook this morning? Uh, somebody in the church shared it. It's such a, a funny thing. And, I, and I, asked, I asked, oh, how old was the guy driving it? I figured it'd be somebody, you know, 16, 17, 18, somebody who doesn't know any better. What? This turns out to be somebody who was a very wise man of 40. (laughs) Now, when you get to be 40, you've lived long enough to know some stuff. You don't know everything, but you know some things. And you kind of learn, you can look back across life. The book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon looking back in retrospect across life, and he says, this is what I've learned, this is what I have observed and, of course, you have that great summation at the end of Ecclesiastes where, he, Ecclesiastes where he says, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. We should fear God and keep his commandments because he's going to judge us for everything. So Solomon's basic understanding is we should pay attention to God and what God wants us to do. So here's what Solomon says in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel. In Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom by all that is done under heaven. It is, un, it, this is striking to me, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. <laughs> God has given us an unhappy business. The unhappiness is caused by the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge sometimes. There is a certain bit of sacrifice and drudgery that comes from seeking wisdom, and then... The more you know sometimes, there's either, there's either two responses to, to gaining knowledge and wisdom. You either learn stuff, then you want to know more, or you wish you didn't know what you know. Or you wish you didn't know what you know. So, now this section I read to you in chapter 10 is, a, uh, is said, here the following commentators give us, give us this advice on verses 8 and 9. John Gill, of course, the greatest theologian to ever live, eclipsing all people everywhere of all time. (laughs) John Gill says the following clauses are proverbial expressions teaching men to be wise and cautious, lest by their conduct they bring mischief, trouble, or sorrow upon themselves. Warnings, lest they bring mischief upon themselves. Albert Barnes same era as Gill, he said, they recommend, they recommend that a man who would act wisely ought to be cautious 
when taking any step in life which involves risk. Any step in life which involves risk, which basically we could expand and say every step you take in life involves risk. Charles Bridges, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he's citing a a man named Thomas Chalmers who was a pastor in the Free Church of Scotland. He says, Let there be neither a secret conspiracy against the established order of things, nor a violent inroad on its fences and landmarks, because there may be a recoil on the perpetrators themselves, just as the renders and pullers down the renders and pullers down of things material are in danger of being hurt therewith. Now what he's saying is, is the way things have been established, the way things are, maybe you shouldn't mess with it, right? lest you hurt yourself. Now, back here, when we, we did the renovation back here. I see Mary Hustlink over here. And when I walked into the renovation, the first day of renovation, of demolition, I walk in the back back there and saw Mrs. Hesselink with a sledgehammer. I kept my distance. <laughs> but then, you know, after a while, she was, she was knocking down a wall back there, and I thought, oh, I'm going to go over there and help her out, you know? And she was pow, 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 hitting the wall. And then, you know, when you got two people, she's on one side of the wall, I'm on the other side of the wall. She's on one side of the wall, I'm on the other side of the wall. Sledgehammer, very heavy. Driven by those arms, goosh! You know, could have got my head crashed. Sometimes, when you decide to tear something down, you have to be careful lest you be hurt in the deconstruction of it. This is, this is the, the theme here of this, this text, is we need to be careful. If you dig a pit you'll fall into it. A serpent will bite us if we break through the wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. Now this is an interesting reading because it seems that everybody who messes with stones in quarries gets hurt by the stones themselves. And if you split a log, you're endangered by them. Now, the main idea here of Solomon's advice in verses 8 and 9 is that we shouldn't mess with the walls and the fences because these fences and walls have been erected for our good. And in the life of a Christian and in the life of a church, these warnings are applicable and needed because sometimes we just recklessly take out walls not considering what's going on. I'm sorry to refer to the renovation back there at the back, but this is applicable, I think. is When we began to do the renovation back there, we've removed one wall back there to make that room longer. But before we knocked out that wall, we had to be sure that that wall was not a load-bearing wall, lest we knock the wall out and bring the whole thing down on our heads. You have to be careful when you deconstruct things. And so we need these warnings in Scripture. I need these warnings, and you need these warnings. And every person that I know of who cares about the things of God in any way needs a warning like this. So when you begin to say, I don't need to be warned anymore, I've outgrown warnings, let me caution you lest you wind up driving your truck into Mullet Lake. You've got to be cautious. Heed the warnings. Now when we become lifted up in pride, we're headed for a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. I quote it all the time to my kids. If my kids know any Bible verse, they know that one. Because my dad quoted it to me all the time. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When you become lifted up, you're headed for a humbling, a humbling. Now let's consider four headings. Let's consider four headings. Number one, your actions can bring you pain and rightly so. Listen to what God says in Proverbs chapter, 20, chapter 1, verses 23 to 33. It's a fairly long reading but it is so punchy. Listen to what he says here. This is Solomon writing again. If you turn at my reproof, this is the voice of the Lord, if you return at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. But it's if, if you listen to my reproof, if you listen to my correction, this is what you will receive. You will get something from God. If you want to know something from God, you want to get something from God, you've got to listen to God. God says, listen to me, and I will give you my spirit. Now, this is Holy Spirit. This is something you need. We all need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
And I'll open my words to you. I will make known my words to you so you can understand these things. But if you do not, look at verse 24. Because I have called and you refuse to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will... I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then you will call upon me, but I will not answer. God says, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you. I gave you caution after caution after caution. You did not listen. Now you got to eat it. Now you've got to eat it. Now, more than likely in your life, you've lived this out. You knew you shouldn't. You knew you shouldn't. You knew you shouldn't. You went ahead and did it. And what happened? You had to pay the, suffer the consequences of your choices. God is no different. They will call upon me if they will not hear me. They will seek me diligently but will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own desires. Striking. Sometimes the choices we make, the actions that we decide to undertake, they cause us pain, and rightly so, because we have to suffer. We have to learn from our mistakes. The passage says, if you take some actions... Something's going to happen to you. If you take the wrong actions, you're going to suffer. Now, in our text in Ecclesiastes 10, verses 8 and 9, the consequences are this. If you dig a pit, you're going to fall into it. If you break a hedge or a wall, a serpent is going to bite you. If you try to cut wood, you're going to endanger your flesh. You've got to think about the consequences of your actions. Now, these Proverbs... These little proverbial warnings are in varied form and in varied degree, but the sense is the same. They all will bring you trouble. And there is a certain amount of mystery in these things because you never quite know what's going to happen. When I was uh, 16 years old, I got on a little Mazda 1984. Mazda B2200 or B2000 pickup. Remember those little red pickups? And they had the, they had the, the, uh, the, the tie-downs on the outside of the bed around the side of the little handles all over. I bought one on a Friday afternoon for $800. And uh, I'd never owned a standard, Darian. I never had a stick shift. That was my first one. I had, I'd only driven tractors with stuff like that. But, you know, driving a tractor is not like driving a car. Slightly different. And I remember my dad. My dad drove it outside of town. He parked on the side of the road. And I got into his car and got into my new truck. It was, it was, it was pre-used, pre-owned. It was also pre-wrinkled on one side. <laughs> and I got in it, and I put it in gear, clutch, first gear, took me about 20 minutes to get off the side of the road. Finally got it going, drove it home, you know, oh, this is nice. I got home, parked it. Next morning, I got up, and I said to my mom, I said, need anything from town? <laughs> Hopped in that thing, put it in gear, drove to town, so happy. Went home, went to town, went to town got some donuts and brought them home. My mom there, like, hey, this is the way to go. I got a kid that can do errands now. You know, this is the life. And so I talked to my brother, and I said, hey, I said, a friend of mine wants, wants, us, to come help, wants us to come help him hang some deer stands. I said, do you want to go along? He said, sure. This is Labor Day weekend, 1994. We jump in the truck. <clears throat> we drive over there. And on our way back from hanging deer stands, we've been hanging on the sides of trees 30 to 40 feet in the air without a harness, as God intended. <laughs> hanging deer stands and getting everything set up. Got back in the truck. I'm zipping down the road. Me and my brother get into a slight argument, a slight tiff over where we should turn to go to Samdell Lake. We were not going to the lake at all. All we were doing was discussing the right place to turn to go there if we were going to go there. My brother was sure it's here. I said, no, it's down there. And we, I said, well, I'll show you. And started driving. I was driving fast. You know, I've got to prove this boy wrong ASAP. 
lest he go on in his ignorance. <laughs> we go from, you know, a, a tar and gravel road, you know, chip, chip, and they call them pea gravel and tar, very nice, nice hard road. Went from that to gravel, doing about 65 miles an hour. And when we hit that gravel, the back of that truck started. We hit a tree. Head on, doing about 65, not wearing seat belts. I had a Mazda tattoo on my chest, you know, from the steering wheel. <laughs> Punched out the windshield of my face. That's why I look so great today. <laughs> my brother broke his leg. He had to drag himself out of the truck. You know, we had no idea what was going to happen. I had no idea of the consequences of my actions. I knew I was speeding. I knew I was going fast. I knew I was being a little bit reckless. I had no idea that within an hour or two, I was going to be on a helicopter. I actually, they, they life-flighted me to a hospital in Indiana, took my brother by ambulance to a bone trauma clinic. I mean, that little, that little, that little those few moments, you know, just kind of wrecked our life for about the next year. Hospital. My brother didn't walk without crutches for a year because they broke his femur. They had to put a steel rod in. I mean, he got all jacked up. I mean, it's just, you never know what's going to happen. And you have to be thoughtful about the decisions you're making because you're going to make some decisions and the consequences of those, those decisions, you think you know what's going to happen. You think you know the outcome. You think nothing's going to happen. You think nobody's going to get hurt. You think you're going to get out of it unmarked. But you can't be sure of that. You never know. It says here, if you dig a pit, you're going to fall in. Who digs a pit planning on falling in? Who digs a hole and plans on falling in? Who tears down a wall and think, is, is afraid it's gonna, a snake's going to come out and get you? Well, not up here. We don't worry about it. You don't think about these things. You may walk away from a fall. You may walk away from an endangering moment. But then again, you may not. Now, my mom's stepdad was bit by a rattlesnake when he was 15 years old in Kentucky, and he survived. My mom's stepdad. No. I started to say we kind of wish he hadn't survived, but that would be mean. But he did survive. But in 2014, where we lived at in Oklahoma, over the, there's a big wildlife refuge called the Wichita Mountain Wildlife Refuge. Believe this, believe this or not, it's supposed to be one of the, uh, the, the most visited of all the refuges in America, which I find hard to believe compared to some other places, but it's pretty nice over there. There were two Marine second lieutenants over there goofing off, hiking in the mountains. One of those guys, 23 years old, got bit by a rattlesnake over there, and his two buddies, they're with him, he had two other lieutenants, they carried him back to the car. By the time they got into the hospital, they were so far back in the refuge, by the time they got to the car, got to the hospital, the only thing they could do when they finally got him out of there was they cut off his leg at the knee. Now, that's a young guy in his early 20s, completed college, went through you know, officer training, and he's beginning his military career. His future is bright. And he gets snake bit and gets his leg cut off. My, my, my mom's stepdad got bit by a rattlesnake. He didn't die. Didn't get his leg cut off. He, re, he recovered just fine. Now, what they have in common is my grandpa, not my grandpa, my step-grandpa, and the Marine second lieutenant, they were both teasing the snake. They were playing with the snake. You never know what's going to happen. This is what Solomon is saying. You don't know. There's an old story from my youth. And preachers used to tell this story. And I don't know if it's a true story, but this is, it's well said that you, I heard when I was a kid many times. About a soldier who was home on furlough, he was married, his wife is in a distant town, and he's there on furlough. He has leave time, and he seeks comfort and compassion and sexual gratification in the arms of a woman he doesn't even know, a one-night visit. And he wakes up the next morning, goes into the bathroom to wash his face, and sees on the mirror with lipstick she's written, Welcome to the World of AIDS. I mean, you, you don't know what's going to happen. You think you know, but you don't know. So you've got to be careful with decisions that you make. You've got to be careful. 
There's an old song that was popular when Valerie and I were kids. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you far more than you'll ever be able to pay. Sin will take you further than you mean to go. Let's bring this to the second heading. Barriers are built for reasons, and messing with them can be a bad idea. Barriers take a lot of work to build. Fences take some planning and some design. Somebody takes the time to put up a barrier. You should be cautious before fooling with it. The old adage is, before you take down the fence, better figure out why it was put up in the first place. Now listen to Deuteronomy 7. Take your Bible, turn there. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 5. A short reading. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. He says you must kill all these people because if you don't, You'll be tempted to, verse 3, you shall not, he says, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you. You say, well, God puts up a barrier here. He says, do not marry with intermarry with idolaters. Because if you marry someone who's an idolater, they'll, be, they'll lure you away from God. Barriers. Did Israel listen to God's advice? They didn't. And the result was the nation descends further and further into idolatry, and then in time they sunk lower and lower and lower until they lost their distinctiveness as God's people, and God displaced them from Canaan and dispersed them across the world. He destroyed their national identity and culture because they said, we are not going to listen to God. We're not going to listen to God. They tore down God's fence, which he had put up for the good and safety of his people, but they jumped the fence and they suffered. Now, in general, people don't like fences. Do you like fences? Just depends, right? I, I put down here, I was thinking about breaking into song right here. <laughs> Singing that old song, Don't Fence Me In. Don't fence me in. Let me stand in the east where the breeze commences. I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. (laughs) Lock me up forever, but I ask you please, don't fence me in. That's a great song, especially when Roy Rogers does it. Anybody else is substandard. We don't like fences in general, but a fence is a mighty handy thing when it's in the right place. Mighty handy when it's in the right place. And wherever God has erected a fence... I want, you to listen, I want you to listen to this carefully. Wherever God has erected a fence, it's in the right spot. Because God doesn't make any mistakes. God makes no errors. And if God has put up a fence there, you would be wise to keep out. You'd be wise. But what happens to you and me is we're not wise. We're dumb. And we poke our hand through the fence... And get bit by a snake. That's what happens. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Unless you think this is all Old Testament mumbo jumbo. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 25. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. He's talking there about serving the Lord in the preceding verses. Serving the Lord. Now, number three. This is where the sermon's going to get long, okay? There are some walls that need to be built, 
and some walls in your life that need to be strengthened. And I want to point out eight of them. (laughs) Eight of them. Number one, your devotional life is a wall of protection. Reading the Bible and praying are walls of protection that you need to keep up with. They're, e- they're easy to let down. They're, e- they're easy to let fall into disrepair because we get really busy. If you, you wake up in the morning, you're going to wake up tomorrow, Monday morning, how many of you got stuff you need to do? That's all of us. Got a job you got to go to. You got errands you got to run. You, you know, spring is coming, so now we're thinking about spring thoughts. Getting the fishing stuff ready. Getting the garden ready. They're thinking about changing oil and stuff. And you're just thinking about things you've got to get done. And, you, and you'll wake up tomorrow morning, you'll hit the ground running, and you won't read your Bible, you won't pray. And if you don't do it, this is my experience, if you don't do it in the morning, you're probably not going to do it the rest of the day. Now, sometimes people say, well, preacher, I do it at night. I choose to believe you. I wouldn't call you a liar, but I just, I just, you know, just from my own experience, if you don't do it first, you're not going to do it. John Wesley, believe it or not, he said, when I have a hundred things to do, I do not feel that I can begin unless I have spent at least two hours in prayer. Now, if you're like me, when I got a big list, the last thing I think, Lord, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to do that. I got this list. Valerie has given it to me. And it must be accomplished. I've got to get this done. I don't have time to pray. But my experience is when I take time to pray, it's like time is more productive. It's like one minute has a 10-minute value. It's like I'm more productive. Because God honors us in these things. Praying and reading your Bible. Uh, you know, how long has it been since you read the Bible on purpose? Sit down. Got out an actual Bible, not an iPad or a phone, which, you know, if that's what you got, that's cool. But get out a Bible and look at it and say, okay, I'm going to read this Bible, I'm going to read this chapter, I'm going to read this section of Scripture, and I'm going to pray and talk to God. That's a wall, that's a devotional wall. God will speak to you and help you and deal with you and grow you through your devotional life. So that's number one. Number two is personal holiness. Sanctified living is something that can be neglected. And when I say holy living, I mean living a life to please God your Father. You want to live your life in such a way that it makes your heavenly Father, forgive the terminology, that makes God smile. Makes God smile. Now, I've had five kids. I haven't had five kids. Valerie's had five kids. I've helped her raise these children. And these children, I've watched them do things that made me smile. And I've watched them do things that made me do other stuff. Now, it's always nice when you catch them doing something good when you're not around. If they're doing good when I'm watching, you know, that's good. But, but seeing them do the right thing when nobody's around, man, that's great. Or to hear somebody say, hey, you're a kid. And, and, not, and not when they compliment talent so much, it's when they, talent, when they compliment character. That's so much, it's so much, it's so much, it's so superior. Live a life that honors God. He is our Father. Number three, a wall. Parents. Parents are a wall of protection to their children. Now, young people don't always like that. There's a tension there. The protective attitude of parents is, is usually motivated by love for the child. Sometimes it looks like paranoia. Sometimes it is paranoia. Because you don't know where your mind's going to go. How come they haven't responded to my text? Now, it's funny. It's funny. It's sometimes, Leslie, when I, 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 I want to know where she is. And so instead of texting her and saying, where are you? On, we, we share our location, the whole family does, with each other. We know where, where everybody's at on our little phones, right? So I can tell where everybody's at. Looks like they're all here. <laughs> and here's what's funny. is A couple times, because Leslie has wheels, so she's, she's mobile. 
agile, mobile, hostile. (laughs) She's got wheels. And sometimes that little blue dot puts her in the middle of the Sheboygan River. (laughs) And I think think to myself, surely not. She can't be in the river. Or could she? (laughs) She doesn't ice fish, so I think she's going to be okay. But yet that you, you get paranoid sometimes. Sometimes kids, mom and dad, you think, well, why, why would they get off my back? Why are they always hassling me? They love you. And I've made tons of mistakes in my life, and I would like to help my kids avoid those mistakes if I can. And sometimes, sometimes they got to make their own mistakes, but we, we, we love them. Parental protection is a wall. Now, if you are a parent, you need to think about your role in that. You need to be a wall for your family. Sometimes you got to be a bad guy. It ain't no fun being a bad guy, but sometimes you have to do these things. Marriage is a wall of protection. Marriage is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Marriage alone provides you a safe place for sex and intimacy. Now, sex and intimacy are, are not always the same thing. Sometimes we say, well, they were intimate. Well, I have some intimate friends, but we ain't been having sex. So there's a, there's a difference. Now, when you talk about that, you have to, I'm presuming a couple things. I'm presuming that you have a Christian marriage. Not all marriages are Christian. Not all marriages are really good. I'm speaking in a general sense. If your marital situation falls outside those confines... I don't, have time to t- I don't have time to talk to you about those things right now. But I'm presuming you have a, a marriage. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage is something that must be worked on and worked at. Valerie and I have been married for 25 years. And, and it hasn't, you know, on one hand, it's been great the whole time. And on another hand, it's been better and worse. Because relationships go in cycles. Just like this past week. Very busy, very stressful, a lot of nya, nya, nya. Both ways. Sometimes I'm short and curt with her, sometimes she's short and curt with me. But you know what? I think it was, I don't know if it was last night or we kind of, we kind of talked about it, you know. What's going on here? Difficulties. It's a relationship, you got to work at it. You have to maintain it. You got to weed it like a garden sometimes and get all the weeds out of there. Sometimes you got to plant new seeds and, and put new soil, maybe. Sometimes you got to put up a fence around your marriage. I mean, you have to watch over it. You have to cultivate relationships. Marriage is a good thing. And so I want to recommend marriage to all of you. If you're not married, think about getting married. If you are married, try to stay married. But if you don't want to get married, that's probably okay too. But 1 Corinthians, if you want to read more about that, 1 Corinthians 7. Check it out. Number five. Sometimes we have to separate ourselves from sinners. Now, Proverbs 2 gives us a warning about this. It puts people in, in two classes. You have righteous people and evil people. Now, you have to be careful who you let influence you. Proverbs chapter 2 talks about the evil man. Now, the evil man is different than a, than, a, than a sinner, in my opinion. An evil person knows what's right and chooses to do wrong anyway. They're evil. They're scheming. They're conniving. And that's what Proverbs chapter 2 is talking about in the last section there. Now, this man who writes the book of Ecclesiastes, he underestimated the influence of people on him. Because Deuteronomy says about kings that kings should not multiply wives. They should not multiply wives. But Solomon, the guy who's writing this to us, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And these are not all fine Christian women. These are, these are women who are idolatrous pagan women. And these, the wives, their influence on him lured him away from God, lured him into idolatry. You can be influenced by the people around you. You don't realize it. Now, mo- most of my time is spent by myself. You know, I come to the church. 
work at my office, and, you know, people come and see me. But, like, probably 60% of my time I spend alone. I live right inside this noggin right here. And then I got books, right? But Valerie and the kids are all out here in Sheboygan. And one of the most disturbing things about them is the way they're starting to talk. I say Petoskey. They say Petoskey. <laughs> Mom. And sometimes I can't, I'm like, now wait a minute. Let's, let's stretch those vowels. Petoskey. <laughs> I, get, I, get, I can see that, but it, they, they don't know it's effect, affecting them. They don't know it's happening to them, but it's happening to them. Like there's, some, there's something one of the girls say, uh, I've never heard them say it until we moved up here. It's a little expression of frustration or uh, uh, angst. And I can't remember what it is. But if, if I hear it again, I'll, I'll remember it. But it's unconscious influence. You have to be careful about the people you let into your life because they can influence you unconsciously. Number six, old people. Old people can be a wall of protection. Old people are good. Of course, we don't have any old people here. <laughs> Let's all get Dave after church. <laughs> Titus chapter 2 talks about, it uses the word aged men and aged women in the authorized version. Isn't that nice? The aged men and the aged women, that they should instruct the younger men and the younger women. That they should be an example to them. Older people, they really, they, they have some experience. They have some wisdom. And they can be a wall to us. They can be a wall of protection to say, you know, I don't think we should do that. That's not the best choice. Churches usually have a fair amount of older people. And they're good. They're a wall of protection. There's, God puts mature, seasoned people in our lives to guide us and help us. Now, I offer this caution here because I think it's worthwhile. Just because a person is old, seasoned, or aged, and they go to church doesn't mean that they have a holy head. Now, Proverbs 16.31 is interesting. I don't care for the way it's translated in the modern versions, but in the authorized version, it says this. The hoary head, or the gray head, is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. Now, the newer version is translated completely different. But the authorized version, I really like that translation. The hoary head, the gray head, is a crown of glory if it's found in the way of righteousness. Just because a person's got white hair doesn't make them a saint. Just because they've been going to church for 117 years doesn't make them a spiritual giant. If it be found in the way of righteousness. Now there's an interesting story about this in 1 Kings chapter 13. There's a young prophet who's called to go down and give a prophecy against Jeroboam's altar. And the Lord says to him, when you go down there, after you give the prophecy, you get out of town and get out quick. Don't, don't dawdle. Don't eat. Don't drink. Don't turn aside. Don't do anything. He goes down there to Jeroboam's altar. He gives the message and leaves. And on his way out of town, the Bible says an old prophet stops him and says, Hey, I too am a prophet. And the Lord told me to tell you to come to my house and eat. And the, man, and, the young, and the young prophet is kind of like, well, if he's a prophet, he's an old, aged, respectable preacher, I should listen to him. He turns aside, he goes and eats with the old prophet. After dinner, he says, you know, I really need to get, it, get going. He gets on his donkey, he rides outside of town. When he gets outside of town, a lion attacks him and kills him and tears him, but the lion doesn't eat him. The lion just sits down and watches guard over this dead body. And the people 
of the community come by and they see this strange sight. I mean, they've seen people killed by wild animals. This, this, this is the, you know, the wild, wild east. They've seen this before, but what they don't, what they've never seen before is a dead body killed by a lion and the lion just sitting there kind of keeping watch. Well, the people, they, they, they go back and they tell the old preacher, the old prophet, they say, hey, that young prophet who was at your house, he got killed by a lion, the lion's out there. And the old guy goes out there and gets the body and takes it back. You see what this young, what this young preacher, this young prophet didn't realize, didn't pay attention to was when you have a word from God, it doesn't matter what any old codger says to you. When you have a word from God, it doesn't matter what anybody says to you. You don't listen to them. God is over all things and all people, right? So old people are wonderful if they're in the way of righteousness. Number seven, a church is a wall of protection. A church is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. A local, visible fellowship of Christians is such a wonderful thing. In many ways, the local visible church is superior to the universal church because the local church is where you can see people, where you can be around people, where you can hear objective teaching and preaching. It is here in the assembly of the saints that you can be warned, loved, teased, and pointed in the right direction in the local church. The local church is a wonderful, wonderful place. Number eight, a pastor is a wall because he stands for truth. He stands with you. He stands for you. And sometimes he even stands against you. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians, Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Sometimes the truth is unpleasant to hear, but so necessary. These are eight walls that we have and that we need to nurture and care for. Now, over time, it's easy for us to let these walls slide or fall into disrepair. Now, what should you do about these broken down walls? Rebuild them. It's going to require repentance and restoration. It can take some effort, but it's worth doing to rebuild the walls. Now, here's the, la- here's the fourth thing, and lastly. There are walls that need to be defended. Walls that need to be diligently defended with daring bravery. Now, we as Christians, as God's people, especially as a church, we have to be on the defensive sometimes, taking precautions and being watchful over our fellowship. We have to always defend the gospel from perversion and error. The gospel is always under attack. You may say, well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God come down from heaven. He was the eternal word. He was made flesh. He dwelt among men. He lived a sinless life, never sinned in thought, never sinned in word, never sinned in deed. And he went to the cross, and on the cross, God laid the collective guilt of all who would ever believe on him on Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross as a substitute, paying the sin debt of all who would believe on him. He died, they buried him, and on the third day, he rose from the grave in the same body, with the same soul, with the same spirit, with the same face, the same hair, same eyes, same fingers, same toes. He came out of the grave after being in there completely, literally dead, his soul in the, in the innermost parts of the earth, he rose from the dead. And everyone who puts their faith and trust in him will be saved. That's the gospel. And that's under attack all the time. All the time. Now, we defend the gospel by preaching it, by propagating it. You know, the gospel is powerful. And it must be proclaimed. The gospel message is the most important message a church can can present to the world, the gospel. We have to defend the church from the the onslaughts of isms. Isms. Now, everybody, put up your hand. 
please. I will, you repeat after me, I will not get mad at Terry. <laughs> so here are a bunch of isms. Pragmatism. Running the church like a business or a soul factory. Pragmatism. If it works, it must be good. Well, that's not always true, is it? Pragmatism. We have to guard against it. Schism. Dividing over every little difference or preference. If people quit their jobs or their marriages over every difference that people quit churches over, there would be no institution of marriage and no skilled labor force anywhere. Schism, dividing. For some reason, churches are always dividing. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I guess it's the way people are. Schismatic sometimes. We have to guard against elitism as a church. Elitism, when you have the right doctrine, the right practices, the right view of Scripture, it's easy to become arrogant and proud. Now, I think that we have the best church in Sheboygan, hands down. Although, and, and, and most of I think that because I'm like, ah, there's, there's, there's no right way to say that that doesn't sound like a jerk. But I mean, I think we have a great church. I think we have the best church in town. I think we have the best church in town. And, you know, and people go to other churches, how should they feel about their church? The same way. They should be committed to those churches. I'm not saying it's the perfectest church in town. I know we're not perfect. But we have to guard ourselves against becoming elite, looking down, on, down our long, bony noses at other people. Elitism. We have to guard against, and I hear some isms that are new, we have to guard against wokeism. We, guard, we have to guard against transgenderism. There's all kinds of isms that come up that violate what Scripture says. And you have to guard against these things. You have to be on watch for them because they creep up. They creep in. They're like vines that creep in. And before we know it, they've taken over. We have to guard against cronyism in the church. That's being more devoted to friends than we are to the truth. And that's another creeping evil. There comes a day when you have to choose to side with the truth or with friends. By the truth and sell not, the truth is very important. The truth will set you free, but error will enslave you and take you hostage. Now, no church is above decline, and no church is impervious to harmful people and corrupt practices, but every church who will repent of their errors and return to the Lord's way can experience his blessings again. This is what the Lord says to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These seven churches have erred, and Jesus Christ is warning them, repent and do the first works. Return to your first love. Reject false teachers and return to me. And he says, I'm giving you space to repent, but if you don't repent, I'm going to take away your candlestick from you. I'm going to take away the light of the Holy Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, in our homes, in our personal lives, we need to take stock of the walls of protection and don't attack these walls. Don't weaken the walls. Enforce the walls because they are there for our good. Now, some of you are just waiting until you get a chance to change the walls a little. You don't really like where they are now. But at this point in your life, it's not in your power to change them yet. So you're just biding your time until you can remodel the joint. But I offer you this caution. Before you chip away at the walls, consider why they are there and if God has put them there, we need to respect those barriers, these walls of protection. Now, sometimes the problem with the walls is not the wall. Sometimes it's just perspective. You can look at the walls in your life in two ways. You can look at them like prison walls sometimes. Keep me confined. I can only do these certain things. 
Are you kidding me? Or you can look at the walls as the walls of a fortress, as walls that are keeping you safe from making bad decisions. Walls of a fortress. When the enemy is attacking you, when they're hunting you down, you want to get behind a wall and, and, and hide there. And error is a pernicious enemy. The voice of God says these walls are built for your safety. These are walls that God has led up, laid down. And it's the voice of Satan that's out there calling to us saying, come beyond the wall. Climb over the wall, it's better over here. Go ahead and break through that wall. I'm out here waiting on you. When you break through the wall, a serpent will bite you. And you might get your whole body through the wall and get a distance from the wall, but he's out there. Walls of protection. Walls that God has set up. We should maintain these walls. This is the advice of Solomon, the preacher in Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've taken your word in hand. And Lord, I, I confess my own dissatisfaction sometimes with the walls, with the truth, with the thou shalt nots, Lord. And Father, I confess my own apathy towards the condition of walls in my own life and heart sometimes. And Lord, sometimes without my realizing it, I've been digging at the wall. And I pray, Lord, you'd help me to, to not do that. Help me to, to live within the barriers that you have set up. Help me, Lord, to be a son that makes you happy. A son that is pleasing to you. Help me to pursue you with all my heart, all my mind, and all my soul. And Father, I pray for my friends here, my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would help them too. Help us to be the people of God that we ought to be. I pray these things in Jesus' holy and glorious name.